We're back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, if you want to find your Bible and turn to that neck of the woods in the Scripture. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, today, verses 11 to 20. Those who have found themselves in positions of leadership have a common task, and that is to get people motivated. I remember when I was in high school, my wrestling coach would just chew us up one side and down the other. So why in the world does he yell so much? He's trying to get us motivated. If you were a school teacher and you got a bunch of students in the class, you do everything you can to get them to ready to learn, to motivate them. Also, your boss at work sometimes threatens to fire you, sometimes threaten to uh, whatever in order to motivate you. And, and I, as a pastor, do all I can just to keep you awake in the services, you know. <laughs> no, motivation is a common task that every one of us who find themselves in the role of a leader does. Well, Nehemiah is facing that same situation in chapter 2, verses 11 to 20. He is motivating. How do we do that? How does he get those coals of passion stirred up there in the city of Jerusalem? You see, the city had been in sad shape for over 140 years. Just imagine the task that he had. Some of the residents uh, probably have been there a while. Some may have moved in recently. But no one really had seen the city, seen the the walls and the gates and the city in its previous glory before the Babylonian invasion. They'd never seen what it could have been, never seen it in its tip-top shape. So they were used to the rubble. They were used to the disrepair. It was just the way things have always been and lethargy had settled over the city. People had no dream for doing anything more. Well, Nehemiah comes to town. He had already shared the vision uh, to rebuild the broken walls with the king. He has his letters of passage in hand. He's accompanied by the soldiers. He talked to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and got the materials ready to be delivered when the time came. But his biggest job is to go to Jerusalem and light a fire under the people to rise up and build. He is tasked with motivating the people. Follow along as I read Nehemiah 2. (coughs) Verses 11 to 20. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night and I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and I viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. 
Then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the God which had been good upon me, and also the king's word he had so he said, Let us rise up. Several commentaries and found that this was probably the same route that Abraham took from Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was close to Susa there in that land of captive uh, uh, modern-day Iraq now, but tracing the line all the way from there all the way to Jerusalem would have been about 800 miles. And so he needs some time to rest, needs the time to recuperate. He probably is also making some mental notes and plans, thinking what he's going to do, how this project's going to get um, get off the ground. So he's doing that and perhaps uh, resting and also meeting some of the locals here. Doesn't tell anyone his plan yet, but he's taking a few days of quiet reflection. And then he chooses a few good men. Notice in verse 12, that I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. As he begins his survey trip, he chooses some men. Now the scripture doesn't tell us where he got those men, whether they were from Jerusalem or whether they came with him on the trip. The Bible does say that soldiers went with him. And uh, it could have been that Nehemiah chose some um, very loyal, faithful servants that he had there back in Susa to go with him. So he has these good men with him <clears throat> as he goes and inspects the situation. All through the Bible we find that God uses teams. Very rarely do you find someone who is all by himself serving God. As a matter of fact, sometimes that doesn't work. Remember when Elijah felt that he was all by himself and he complained, I'm the only one standing for you, God. And God had to remind him, Elijah, I got 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So he was not alone. Moses had Aaron. We also see that uh, Joshua and Caleb stuck together. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus had 12 disciples and he had three, Peter, James, and John, who were the closest to him, that inner circle, you might say. Paul, when he began his ministry, didn't go by himself, did he? He went with a, a team. He went with Barnabas. Later, he took Silas. Timothy was with him. Luke was with him. And all through the Bible, you find Paul's ministry is a team ministry, and I think that that application should be made to us here in the church age as well. Whenever you do something for God, involve others with you in that project. Don't go out there all by yourself and involve a team effort. The value of a team effort when you're doing or standing for God is valuable. I, I read this cute story that illustrates the value of a, a team effort. There was a man who was driving his pickup truck uh, down or driving his car out in the country and he was lost and he checked the map for directions and while he checked the road this was way before cell phones he checked the the map for directions and when he did he went into the ditch and got stuck in the mud 
So he's there stuck in the mud, and he noticed there was a farm just, just right uh, up the road. So he walked to the farm, and he talks to this farmer and asks him uh, for help. He said, well, I, I, I've got some, something that I think will help. Over there is my mule. His name is Warwick. Warwick is my mule. He'll get you out. The guy was a little skeptical, but he decided to allow the farmer to help him. So they <clears throat> got this old run-down mule, put, in the, put him down to the, where the car got stuck in the mud. And the man figured, hey, I got nothing to lose, and they will, we'll, we'll try this out, see if it works. Well, they got the mule hitched up to the car, and then the farmer starts commanding the mule whose name was Warwick, this way. Pull, Fred. Pull, Jack. Pull, Ted. Pull, Warwick. And the mule pulled the car from the ditch with very little effort. The man was amazed. He thanked the farmer, patted the mule, and says, Why did you call out all of those other names before you actually said his name? (laughs) He said, If Warwick thinks that he's all by himself... (laughs) He can't, he can't see very well, then he won't pull, only when he is in a team. Aren't you grateful for teams? You know, when we partner together, partner together with, with gospel ministry or anything, there's more that can be done. So when Nehemiah was about to take this inspection, he went out in the middle of the night, he took a few good men with him in order to begin this project. And then he makes a detailed survey in verse 13. We see the description of what he goes, and he looks around the city. He went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates of the city, with several gates, they were all burned with fire. And he did so at night, avoid to letting anybody else know his plans before he was ready. Uh, they were firmly fixed in his mind. So during these night hours, he gained a perspective that really his plan was outlined in chapter 3 we'll get to next week. So he had come to Jerusalem for this purpose. So as he surveyed the situation, he moved from west to south to east and concentrates on the southern section of the city, it was just as his brother had told him before that the walls were crumbling and the gates were burned with fire. And he had to face the facts squarely, honestly. He had to make an honest evaluation of the situation. Leaders have got to do that. Leaders can't live in a dream world that everything is fine, nothing is wrong. They have to see things as they really are. And Nehemiah had to go, look, man, this is bad. This is bad. Well, let's see. It's interesting for me as I look at this, the parallel between the book of Joshua and the book of Nehemiah. There's several parallels. One of them is the inspecting of the land. Remember how uh, the 12 spies were sent into the land of Canaan? in order to spy out the land, look at the walls, look at the cities. Well, here, Nehemiah is doing the same thing before he is attacking the project. Well, Nehemiah just inspected the walls. Now he's inspiring the workers in verses 16 to 18. The first thing that he does, he opens their eyes to their distressing situation. Now, 
It says in verse 17, he says to them, meaning the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials. After he gets this news, gets his ideas together, he goes to the, to the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, the officials, the nobles, the rulers of the tribes, and he gathers them together and says, I've got something to talk to you about. And he tells them the situation. He said to them, you see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. He gives them a straight evaluation of the problem. And he does this by identifying with the people. He says, you see the situation we are in. It is us. He doesn't say, you people have let this thing go. No. He says, we are in a world of hurt. We need to change. We need to do something about this. And he points out to them the problem. The problem. He points out <clears throat> that this can't stand. I mean, you've got the walls that are crumbling. And your gates, the gates are wide open. What if somebody wants to steal something from you? You know? They could just come right in, take what they want, and go... And they've got plenty of rubble to hide behind so thieves could come in and take anything that they want from the city. Also, if somehow there was an invading army that would come in, there was no way they could keep them out. There was no, uh, there was no walls that they could put soldiers up there to, to uh, protect the gates of the, the walls of the city. There was no defense. And Nehemiah opens their eyes to the distressing situation. He shows that we are dangerous. This is a danger. Anybody could just come in and destroy us. Also, what kind of testimony are we to the Lord? We who believe in the great God of heaven, we who believe in the only God that there is, he is mighty. And then the enemies look at this city and says, well, they might serve the only God, Jehovah, but he certainly hasn't helped them with that city wall. Look at the, the mess that their city is in. They might cry, almighty God. Well, they're not very much might in their city. And they reproach the name of the Lord. And that weighs heavy on his heart as he shares this burden with the people of Jerusalem. You know, I think there's a couple applications that I'd like to make here. The first thing is, sometimes you don't see the situation in your own life very well. I don't want to come and look at your garage, but if I did, what would I find in your garage besides the car? <laughs> you know, some of you have things in your garage that you, you know your car is there somewhere, but you have to kind of go like this and, and then maybe go like this in order to get to it because you've got the Christmas decorations over here and you've got all of this mess here. And then, no, you don't have the snow shovel here, but you have all kinds of things there. And you don't see it, do you, until your neighbor comes over and you invite him in and say, boy, this garage is a mess, isn't it? And you say, well, I guess you're right. I've never seen that before. Maybe that's the same way with other things in your life. But sometimes it's true in our spiritual lives as well. We accumulate evil thoughts. We accumulate things that shouldn't be there. And it takes 
the Word of God. It takes the Spirit of God to open our eyes. What a mess we have made in our spiritual life. We need to do something about it. So Nehemiah is pointing out to them the distressing situation in their life. There's another application that I'd like to make to this passage. They were a reproach to the Lord. They were being a poor testimony. Having all this rubble, all the city leaders around him, they would come in to visit Jerusalem. They said, well, these people don't seem to care much about their own city. They don't seem to care about the name of their own God. I remember driving down a, a rural country road in Illinois on vacation one year. And how I like to look at churches and things as I go by and look at their signs. And I seen this one church, a small church, that said Friendship Baptist Church. And I thought, what an inviting name, Friendship Baptist Church. I hope it's not your church when you're up north or anything. <laughs> anyway, Friendship Baptist Church. I could barely read the sign because some of the letters were falling off and the paint was peeling off the sign and the weeds had grown up so much around. They were still having services because they still had the letters up there and it wasn't boarded up. But it seemed like that they wanted to portray themselves as being friendship but they weren't very friendly in the way they were taking care of their building. I think that there is something about making the house of the Lord something that would honor him. I, I think that there is a kind of an application here because if you don't care for the building, now I don't mean that having it all uh, the most expensive thing you can do and having it and don't ever worship the building. Let me tell you, this is not the house of God. We are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we need to care for what God has given us. I was uh, in preparation for our 40th anniversary, which is going to be in November 20th and 21st, and uh, been writing um, a, the last 10 years of our history and it's interesting to see the building projects that this church has been involved in in order to make the facilities look better and things. We started out, the fellowship hall was the church. I, I, very few people remember that. I think Terry might remember it, but not too many. Uh, yeah, Bill Massey remembers that. That was the beginning of the church. Started in 1981. The church was built like in 83 or 84. And that was it. And then later on, Pastor uh, Owens came. And we've seen that they, they built a classroom section. And then when Pastor Tom was here, they built this auditorium. And uh, we, when we came, we've seen the kitchen built and the parking lot built. And then somewhere in the middle, we knocked out that back wall. Some of you that are sitting in the way back, we, we call you people of the back 80. You're the back 80 because we knocked out that wall. That, that big thing was the end of the church and everything else was foyer. So we did that. And then, of course, we added some other things. And then two years ago, we did a complete remodel of the church because we want things to honor the Lord. And you see, when Nehemiah was trying to, to get them to come on board with this, he was saying that you need to make sure that we do not be a reproach to God. The next thing, as he shows them the distress, he assures them that they can do it. 
in verse 18, the good hand of God is once again pointed out. If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, the hand of the Lord was with them. He would, uh, he would enable them to do the work. God had already proved his power by working in the heart of the king as he told those people, hey, the king's already been in favor of us. He, he sent me here for this project. We've got all the lumber we need from the nearby forest with Asaph, the keeper of the forest, giving us permission to, to get all the wood that we need for the houses and also for the, the gates to rebuild them. And I've got soldiers here protecting us in this endeavor. So we've got all of these things. So he issues the challenge to build in verse 17. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And they built. The fire is lit and they set their hands to the work. Let us rise up and build. It was Nehemiah's personal burden for Jerusalem. And he experienced his experience with the Lord that convinced the Jews that now was the time and the time was right to build this. So everything's going well. Nehemiah does his nighttime inspection. He looks at the situation clearly. He says, there's a pile of rubble. We've got to get this taken care of. And I've got to let the people know the, the, the actual problem we have. And then he inspires the workers. You know, like a, a football coach says, we can do this. We can do this. And they said, let us rise up and build. So everything's going well. They're ready. They got the project laid out in their minds. And they're just about ready to start the labor. And then something happens. Interference of the wicked. Verse 19 and 20. But, notice that, that's a big word there. But, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshev the Arid heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? The identity of the opposition. Who are these guys? I looked them up in commentaries, and some of the commentators have a little bit of disagreement, but... Um, they, the general understanding is Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Now, that was a nearby province to Judea. Samaria was always just right north of, of uh, Judah. And you find them even in the New Testament, Samaria. And then also, Tobiah was governor of Ammon, which was a nearby province as well. And Geshem, the Arab, was south of Judah. So they, who were these men and why are they opposed to this project? Well, they were governors of surrounding territory. And when King Artaxerxes, who was in control of the, that major empire, you know, he was a Persian king and he was in control of this. And he gave power, gave authority for those people that were in that area to have authority. Well, Judah didn't seem to have much authority. Probably he was Samaria, had a little bit of that territory, and, and then uh, Ammon and the south with the Arabs. They looked at Judah as part of their reign. 
So what is happening is these Jews are beginning to build and hear, they hear rumors, these neighboring uh, people hear rumors, Sanballat and Tobiah, it's taking away some of their political power. Oh no, we're going to have this guy to deal with. When we can control these people that don't have a leader, don't have someone that's in charge of them. So that's why they are upset. The verbal attack is launched in verse 19. When they heard of it, this is what they did. They laughed at us, despised us. What is this thing that you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? One of the greatest factors of opposition comes from negative, deflating words. Words that take the wind right out of your sails. Words like, you'll never amount to nothing. Words like, we tried that before. <laughs> We're content with the things the way they are. Don't rock the boat. Don't try to change things. I didn't work before. Why try it again? You know, Christian leaders today face the same two obstacles as they seek to lead God's people into new conquests for the Lord. I'm sure you remember when you were a child, some of those words that you heard from maybe a teacher or from a parent or a relative that just cut you to the heart. And I tell you, the devil will try to use words, even of God's people, that will just deflate you and cause you to feel defeated and not want to do anything for God. The power of words. Uh, I heard a, a, a story, a touching story, that reveals the power of words. Mary had grown up knowing that she was different from the other kids, and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate and had to bear the jokes and stares of cruel children who teased her nonstop about her misshapen lip, her crooked nose, and her garbled speech. With all the teasing, Mary grew up hating the fact that she was different. She was convinced that no one outside of her family could ever love her until she entered Mrs. Leonard's class. Mrs. Leonard had a warm smile, a round face, and a shiny brown hair. While everyone in her class liked her, Mary came to love Mrs. Leonard. In the 1950s, it was common for teachers to give their children an annual hearing test. Hey, they didn't do these hearing tests with any kind of machines. In Mary's case, the addition of her cleft palate, she was barely able to hear out of one ear. Determined not to let the other children have another difference to point out, she would cheat on the test each year. The whisper test was given by having a child walk to the classroom door, turn sideways, close one ear with a finger, and then the teacher would uh, say something and the child would have to repeat that something which the teacher whispered. Mary turned her bad ear towards the teacher on that day and pretended to cover her good ear, but she didn't really do it. And she knew that the teacher would often say things like, the sky is blue, or what color are your shoes, but not on that day. God put seven words in Mrs. Leonard's mouth that changed Mary's life forever. When the whisper test came, Mary heard those words that said, I wish you were my little girl. And those changed her life. Words are powerful. 
Words can encourage and lift, and words can hurt and destroy. Well, those people heard those verbal attacks, but Nehemiah gives them a firm answer in verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He was addressing Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and says, you don't have any right here. What was he saying? You are not one of God's people. You don't belong in this family. You're not part of this project. You're not part of his people. I think we need to understand that God also says he has his own children. He has his own people. And there's people that, that pretend to be in God's family but are not. They're not citizens of heaven. They've never had the joy in Christ. They're not seated in heavenly places. They're not found in Christ God has given us that portion, the portion of blessing, but also we find in chapter 3 that we got a portion of the work. Accomplishing what God wants us to do is a great task that we need to get done. However, we all are in need of motivation, aren't we? We need to constantly stir up the fire of our passion for serving God, for loving God, for obeying God. I remember when I was a child, we had in our kitchen a coal stove. Anybody remember those days of coal stoves? Yeah, coal is uh, a black rock, you kids, that you burn. I don't know if you, kind of like charcoal, but anyway. They had coal stoves, and I remember in February up in Indiana, it was cold, and mom would have the, coal, the, the stove going at night. And in the morning, it would burn low. And early in the morning, we hurried up and got out of bed to try to get around that coal, coal stove. But before it could get started, she'd had to do something. She got the bucket of coal from the basement and brought it up there. But then she had to open that door and get something that's called a poker. You know what a poker is? You know what that is? Anyway... And she had to get down on her knees and stir up those coals and shake the ash down in the ash pan. And, and then the, the coals would be hot and then put more coals. She had to stir up those coals. And that's what God has to do in our lives all the time. Because we have a tendency to grow cold because we have this sinful nature. And sometimes the fire of our love for God gets cold. The fire of his uh, knowledge of his word and the fire for holy living gets cold. And God has to stir us up and get us burning once again. Oh, my friend, God is saying to us in his whisper from his word, you are my child. I love you. Please love me and serve me. Father in heaven, motivate us, God. Motivate us. Stir us up. Stir us up to a place where we need to be. Father, if there's your children that are here today and there's some things in their life that 
They just need to get right. Oh, God, take the poker of your word and stir us up. Help us to have that fire burning for you again, the fire of serp you again. I pray your spirit would do the work. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's